0: Psalm 98, beginning in verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with a lyre and with the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of a horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, he's exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity, you have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You are forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Amen.
1: Welcome, if you're visiting with us, we are very pleased to have you. I'm going to ask that you open your Bibles now to the book of Revelation, chapter 6, as we'll be studying together verses 9 through 17, Revelation 6, verses 9 through 17, And the word of God reads, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? When shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? God, in his grace, has condescended in order to communicate to us as believers his divine and in doing so, he's provided us with different literary styles of writing throughout the Bible, to be literally interpreted, interpreted within their intended context. There's a certain way that you interpret history. Paul walked into the Areopagus, he literally walked into the Areopagus. There's the literary style of lament throughout the Bible. Law, we see poetry in the Psalms. We see genealogies, and in the Gospels, you have the parables, you have sermons. You see instruction by way of the epistles, which are letters from the apostles. There's wisdom literature in the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, For instance, when we read Proverbs 22 6, where it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, when he's old, he shall not depart from it. That is not an unconditional promise. That is a proverb. That is a probability. If you raise your children in the way they should go, it is most likely that they will continue to follow the Lord. It is not a guarantee. Many that have grown up in the instruction of the Lord have walked away from the faith, never became a believer. When you talk about transcendent things, such as the throne room of God, or these seals that are being broken open by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of Almighty God, you are reduced to metaphorical speech. And one of the most unusual literary styles of writing in the the Bible is apocalyptic, And we see elements of this writing in Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Zechariah, and almost all of the book of Revelation. It was a very popular form of writing from 200 BC to 200 AD. And because it seems so strange in our day, many Christians attempt to press into the text 21st century imagery. That's what we don't want to do. Okay, bear with me as I provide a little bit of review for the sake of rightly interpreting the Revelation before we get into our text this morning. But rather than interpreting it in context to old, its Old Testament visionary counterparts, people press into it imagery that doesn't belong here. Revelation has made perfect sense to the early church because they understood the imagery involved. Therefore, it's up to us to go back and study the Old Testament so we too understand the imagery that's being conveyed by Jesus Christ to this angel, passed down to John, passed down to the believers to this very day. So, metaphors aren't provided here for the sake of drawing exact or literal mental pictures for us. For instance, a six-winged creature with eyes inside and outside is described or is not described, rather, so that we would formulate an image of our mind of an angel with eyeballs on the front and back of its wings. But rather, each metaphor is, prevented, is presented for us to astonish the mind. That's what apocalyptic literature does. With conceptions that are beyond imagination, each lending strength to that which is being conveyed. For instance, the throne of God. How on earth do you begin to depict the throne room of Almighty God? You see there, creatures having six wings full of eyes all around and within? Those aren't eyeballs on wings. That simply conveys the omniscience of Almighty God along with the humility of angelic force that surround his throne. Covering their feet with two of their wings. Covering their eyes with two other wings. And flying with another set of wings. It's described for us in Isaiah 6. So in in order for us to understand the imagery conveyed here, we must be familiar with the Old Testament. Now, different cultures have different symbols. Culture. This culture before us had certain symbols that they understood. So the original recipients of this letter had no problem deciphering or having to decode the imagery involved here. Now every culture has symbols, amen? We use symbols that don't have to be explained. If I had a photo on the screen here of a birthday cake, or of a cake rather, with five candles on it, That's a birthday cake for a five-year-old. We wouldn't have to decode that image. If you see a, a red sign in the shape of an octagon, although the word stop is not in white letters, you would know it represents stop, halt. In other words, we don't have to decode these things. We understand them. Now, I provided an apocalyptic exercise with modern language on week one of our study of the book of Revelation. I want to read it to you again. Bear with me if you were here. If you weren't, this should be an encouragement to you. See if you can depict what this is. The crescent moon mooned larger. While the eagle slept, two silver birds flew above the wall and tore into the apple. The great and the small, the finest and the bravest perished. Ashes to ashes, from dust to dust, the bull and the bear stood still as the smoke rose from the twisted steel mountain. The number of the mystery is 911. The crescent moon represents Islam. It mooned larger. Islam is growing at a radical rate. And while the eagle slept... The eagle is symbolic for America. She was asleep when two silver birds, airliners, flew in t- up above the wall, Wall Street, and tore into the apple, New York City, the big apple. The great and the small, they perished. The rich and the powerful in the Twin Towers. The custodians, the small or common everyday people like me, perished, the finest and the bravest perished. The finest, New York City's finest, New York City police. New York City's bravest, New York City fire department. Ashes to ashes, from dust to dust, the the bull and the bear stood still. The New York Stock Exchange came to a screeching halt. As the smoke rose from the twisted steel mountain, the number of the mystery is nine one one. Obviously, that is describing nine one one in apoc- apocalyptic literature, and we understand the metaphorical language involved there. We don't have to work too hard at it. So, why why are there so many beloved believers who struggle with the Book of Revelation? Well, not understanding how to read apocalyptic literature is one reason for that struggle. But another reason, and I believe it's the primary reason, is the question that arises when reading this book. And that is to ask, when? When do these events take place? Christians continue to ask that question to this very day, especially within the last 150, 60 years or so. When when do these things take place, they ask? Now, that's not a bad question. That's just the wrong question. When Jesus announced the coming destruction of the temple, how Jerusalem would be sacked, and the temple, as he pointed it out to his disciples, he said, most assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another. The succeeding question of his disciples was this, tell us when, Lord, followed by, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Now notice, their presupposition was that those two events would occur simultaneously. The end of the age of Judaism, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, and the end of the age of human existence in a fallen universe. But those were not simultaneous events, were they? Jesus provided information with regard to the destruction of the temple He said, when you see this and this and this occurring, get out, run to the hills. And history tells us by the pen of Josephus that many Christians fled and the majority of those that were crushed in the destruction were unbelieving Jews. Regarding his coming at the end of the age, he gave some vague, he provided vague comments. But concerning the day of his final return, Jesus answered, of that day and hour, no one knows. Matthew 24:44, all of that discourse he said be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the Lord's answers had to do with preceding signs that are similar to the opening of these four seals for which we looked at last week. Jesus said, There will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. There will be earthquakes. There will be famines. There will be pestilence. Now, the four horsemen of the apocalypse have been released. Which answers the question why, if Christ has conquered, is there such suffering on the earth? Well, because seals one through four have not only been opened, they've been enacted which are the judgments of almighty God upon the earth between the first and the second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ, where there is war, where there is civil unrest, represented by the red horse, murder of man by the hand of man, pestilence, famine, and death, which is followed by Hades, which is the judgment of unbelievers. So these forces of woe and calamity are precursors, beloved, of God's final judgment that is yet to come. So the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which are the four horsemen of the last days, remind us that eschatology, which is the study of last things, have already been set into motion both in salvation and in judgment. These judgments are partial. They manifest themselves only in part until the very end. The instruction to the first disciples was not to know times and seasons, but to know power and purpose. This is what Jesus said in Acts chapter one before he ascended. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power and, There's the power of the Holy Spirit when He has come upon you. That happened at Pentecost. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. That's the purpose. That's their purpose. By the power provided to preach the gospel. They don't need to worry about the when or the how. You just be concerned with the purpose and the power provided you to carry out the purpose. Now, when you take the time element, beloved, Out of Revelation, many people become confused in knowing how to read or understand this glorious book. So we must see these occurrences here as having already begun with the promise of judgment as well as salvation that will both be finally consummated upon his return. Temporary judgment on the earth. We see wars, we experience wars. There's been war since Jesus ascended and there will continue to be war. There is pestilence. There will continue to be pestilence. There is famine. There will continue to be famine. Men will kill men by the sword just as they have from the beginning. God's partial judgment. Now, that's an element of suffering that the Bible says here is for unbelievers. Because when they die, they go to Hades a place of wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth, awaiting final judgment, the lake of fire, the place of the dead, represented by the pale horse. Now, we see another dimension of suffering in here as we look at the unsealing of the fifth seal, depicted through the martyrdom of God's covenant people, Christians, believers. So the the scene now, beloved, shifts from from the earth and the release of these four horsemen back to the throne room of God. So the camera now pulls back and it's now back in heaven upon the throne where there's a crying out. So we want to see this morning who it is that's crying out from heaven. What is it they're inquiring about? And what is the answer to their inquiry? Notice in your outline. Seal number five. Here now we see the souls of the saints. The opening of the fifth seal reveals for us those who die because of their testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse nine. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Christian martyrs slain for their testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ who adhere to the word of God. John sees souls of those who've been martyred. Now the word soul here signifies that part of our existence which survives death of the body. If you're in Christ, your soul survives the death of your body and you go to be with the Lord immediately. If you're an unbeliever, your soul survives the death of the body but it goes into torment immediately. No second chance. No such thing as purgatory. It's not in the Bible, never was in the Bible, never will be in the Bible. It's not there. It is a man made ideal. What this defines for us is what's known as the intermediate state. Our friend Katie died a few months ago. She used to sit right here. Her body, it's in the ground, or I think it was cremated doesn't matter because the Lord will resurrect it whether it's in the ground or whether it's cremated. It doesn't matter. The point is her soul is with the Lord. The only thing left is a new heaven and a new earth and a resurrection of those who have died in Christ. So the condition and place of those who die as believers is right here in the presence of the Lord. What did Jesus say about the soul of man? He said this, Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's not a destruction of annihilation. That's the kind of destruction that the soul receives in a manner of being tormented, where there's outer darkness, where the Bible says, Jesus said, there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the resurrection for those who've died outside of Christ will be, they'll be given a body that's fit not for eternity with the Lord and his glory, but it's fit for eternal damnation. Now, those who died so brutally around those who were the original recipients of this letter Are with the Lord. They're in heaven. So this in a very chilling sort of way must have been very encouraging to John's readers. They're suffering persecution. So the vision of these saints, by way of this letter, is encouraging them that my my father, my mother, my brother, my uncle, who who has died for the faith here is with they're with the Lord. Now, the vision of these saints will return again towards the close of the book of Revelation. In chapter 20, those souls as here are conscious, they're capable of being addressed, and they've come to life for what the Bible says is a thousand years, which illustrates a long period of time. And we shall see later in our studies that this refers to the time of interval between the two advents of Christ, where this group live and reign with Christ awaiting the final resurrection of the body. They're awaiting final judgment, all the while experiencing blessing. Notice in in Revelation 14, 13, we see the second of seven beatitudes within the book of Revelation. And it reads, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. And here they are under the altar. This is what they're experiencing, the blessing of God. While at the same time, they want the dawning of the consummation of final judgment. How long, O Lord, they they ask. So they're here because of the word of God. They're here because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. The testimony about Jesus that these believers maintained while they were on earth. In other words, these are people who've accepted the testimony of Jesus Christ. They stand on this truth. This is their life bread. They know that Jesus is the bread of life and they feed on him. They love him because they know that they are loved by him. See, these are people who've not only heard the word of God, but they do the word of God. They stand on it. They've accepted and embraced the word of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ They really, truly believe Christian revelation, the revelatory truth of the gospel that God has given of himself. They've repented. They abide in Christ. They bear fruit of having been born again. Now, there's oftentimes a certain level of disdain and hatred for this kind of people. People like this aren't easily manipulated. They're not easily squeezed into the mold of the world, beloved. Now, there are plenty of people, no doubt, who verbally profess faith in Jesus Christ. They pledge allegiance to the inerrancy of Scripture. They pledge allegiance to the deity of Jesus Christ. They pledge allegiance that he's the only way. Now, they believe that in their head, but it's never reached their heart. They're not a product, in other words, of their verbal profession. They're not a testimony of the Bible that they agree with as being the very word of God. Therefore, their life is a threat to nobody. Yet if you're this kind of a believer who truly believes what you profess to the the degree in which the word of God actually shapes your life, informs what you do with your time, what you do with your money, how you speak, the things that you speak about, what kinds of things you find amusing, the things that shape your sense of humor, your values, your priorities, the thing that formats your work ethic, the kind of church you attend, one with a high view of God, one with a theocentric perspective, It's discovered through the worship of singing and preaching and and teaching. Those kinds of believers are a threat to society as well as a threat to nominal Christians. Some of them get killed. They die because of that. There have been more martyred saints in the last 200 years of church history than the previous 1800 combined yet as the number of martyred saints has risen so has the amount of missionary work from throughout the world this is the age of missions beloved but it's also the age of martyrs. This is the kingdom, but is also the tribulation. As John said in his opening chapter, chapter 1, verse 9, I am John, your brother, in the kingdom and in the tribulation. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus said, let both grow together until the end of the age. The wheat represents believers. The tares represent the world. They'll both grow together until he comes back. So we will see more of the world's malice made visible right alongside of the testimony of those that are truly his, side by side. So now these people, because of their testimony of the word of God, because of their life in Christ, they have earned the world's antagonism. They've earned the world's hatred. And you know what else they've earned? the sword of an unbelieving world. They've died, and here they are under the altar. That is to say, beloved, that back in the Old Testament, the blood of the bull was poured out at the base of the altar. And blood represents life, as you know. So their death on earth has become a sacrifice in the altar of heaven. Their blood has been poured out. They are now in the presence of Almighty God in the throne room. Revealed for us here under the altar. You want to respond to some kind of an altar call, this is the kind of altar call the Christians should respond to. You know, Paul viewed himself as being poured out, as a drink offering. In the last letter he ever penned before being beheaded, he wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 6, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. And they took off his head. So in an age when it was very unpopular, they adhered to the word of God and to the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And their life was taken in a secondary kind of way. This was God's preordained plan for them, as you will see. So there then are, are the souls of the saints. Notice now the voice of the saints, verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, Christians in our day, who do not appreciate the role that justice plays in the work of God, who think that all Christians do is forgive, find themselves puzzled by this cry. They think, well, Jesus was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So they ask, what is this, some kind of bloodthirsty vengeance? Is this a neglect to love with the love of God? No, absolutely not. This is simply the cry of those who long to see both justice and mercy prevail. Finally and forever. That's their cry. They're asking God to vindicate his own name, beloved. To vindicate his honor. So when we interpret the Lord, we don't want to take one aspect of Almighty God in his divine nature and fix that one aspect to God as a whole is representing the nature of God. In other words, God is all love. He's much more than all love. He's a God of wrath as well. Remember, it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Most professing believers today aren't interested in the justice or the holiness of God. Plain and simple. See, the justice of God protects his purity, his holiness. Justice is devoted to his holiness, and these people are passionate about upholding his cause. His reputation. So as his truly redeemed people, we, beloved, must also be passionate passionate about upholding his name, both as merciful people like God, who is very merciful, and passionate, a passionate people about God, about his holiness. They're concerned about upholding his name, upholding his integrity. So the plea of these martyrs is not one of personal vengeance, beloved. Beloved. You know, they're not there sniveling, like a bunch of sniveling Christians, you know, as though they've lost something by way of being martyred. Why was I killed? They're not doing that. They're in the throne room of God. They're in the presence of the Almighty. They're in the midst of his transcendent glory that we've been reading about in chapter four and chapter five. They're in the throne room. So here's this collective cry, "O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood?" In other words, how long will you endure this? How long, Lord, until your patience wears out? You know his patience is not everlasting. It's not. How long until you finally avenge the blood of your covenant community of people? So their their cry for justice here is not driven by selfish desires, but it's in harmony with God's holiness. His sovereign will and purpose is here. So their desire is to see God's justice fully made manifest while all of evil is entirely destroyed. Notice now verse 11, the righteous garments of these once murdered saints. Verse 11, when they were each given, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In other words... How long, Lord? Okay, it's going to be a little longer until those that are preordained to die in like manner is fulfilled. And I've preordained it, he said. There are more to be slain for the word of God and the witness that they bear. And when the full number is met, according to my sovereign decree, then my final judgment will be enacted, but not a minute before. That could be this afternoon. That could be in 30 seconds, beloved. That could be next week. That could be next year. That could be in 100 years. That could be in 200 years, 300 years. And when the full number of his martyrs is met, then will be the coming of the Lamb. Final destruction. Destruction. So this assures the recipients of this letter that he indeed is the one ruling. That although this fifth seal has been opened, it's been enacted upon, ever since the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, all that have suffered attack is an attack which is really set against Christ, the Lamb of God in the first place. They hate them because they hate him. And he will make final restitution. And it will come by way of ultimate final judgment. So it's important that as we read through this, beloved, we cannot forget the original recipients that are reading this letter for the very first time. And that is the group of suffering saints in Asia Minor. The seven churches that this was addressed to. How encouraging this must have been for them. Again, that their loved ones whose blood was shed for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ are with the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're there in the throne room. They're under the altar. Now, this altar in Old Testament times was a very important piece of furniture in the tabernacle and then eventually in the temple. Now, there were two of them. There was one in the courtyard where the animals would be slain, and then there was another altar in the holy place in front of the, uh, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. But how many does John see? One. He sees one altar, which serves, beloved, to fulfill the purposes of the types portrayed in the Old Testament. And all of those types point to Christ, who's the anti-type of it all. He's the temple. It's him. The mercy seat, it's him. It's all him, it's all Christ. So because of the New Testament and the revelatory truth therein, we can read the Old Testament and see that, man, it's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ, it's all Christ, beloved. Listen to Hebrews 8 and 9 they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he, Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, in the meantime if there's a mean time in heaven. Verse 11, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. So here then is, is a heavenly declaration as to the purity and righteousness of these saints in contrast to what? The accusations and the hatred of the world against them. Many Christians in this day were accused of being polytheistic, believing in a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, we are monotheistic. We believe in one God. We serve one God, revealed in that Godhead, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three offices of the same essence, of the same nature. When you say that Jesus lives in your heart, if you're a Christian, he does. He didn't jump in there with his body, did he? No. Quite simply, the Holy Spirit resides in you, who's one in essence and nature with Jesus Christ, who's one in essence and nature with God the Father. The Trinity lives in you. The one true God. But Christians were accused of um, the Judaizers in this day of being polytheistic, serving more than one God. They were given a white robe. Your verdict world against them is wrong. They're cloaked in my righteousness. These are my people. So the the, the fifth seal is still not the final consummation. However, in order to get to the final consummation, the fifth seal must be broken as it was long ago. The blood of the saints we've seen from the ascension of Christ to this very day this is not something that's going to commence in the future. This is already begun. And it continues. So the initiation, then, of the seven-sealed scroll includes the martyrdom of many of God's people. Now, we can look at this from the other end. Here we see that until the last Christian is martyred that is preordained to be martyred, to die for the faith the Lord won't return until that happens. That could be any time. From the other end, we can look with regard to this question of how long, O Lord, to 2 Peter chapter three. Notice what he says here. Verses nine through 11. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Notice the you's and the all's and the us's here. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So here then is the promise of his coming. We see the patience of God towards those that are going to come to saving faith. And what God desires to happen will happen. So it's not that God is desiring that all people without exception are going to come to faith in him because not all without exception are going to come to faith in him. In other words, God's not up there like this. I I desire that everyone would believe in me. I desire that none of them would perish. That's not the thought here. The context is very specific. He's not desiring that any of you perish, but that all. So who is the all and who are the any? Any. Well, let's look at the context. Just back up to chapter three, verse one. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. Next word. Next word. Beloved. Anywhere you read in the Bible of the beloved, who are the beloved ones? The saints, saints, those that are in Christ, those that are preordained to believe. Now, he refers to the beloved, which are God's people. He said, you beloved, this is the second time I've written you. So now let's back up and see who he was writing in the first letter, if this is the second letter. So let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are what? Elect. The context here, beloved, is God's elect chosen, as the Bible says, before the foundation of the earth, who will come to saving faith. And everyone who was chosen before the foundation of the earth will come to saving faith, and his desire is that he will not come back until they all come to saving faith. Therefore, his patience endures. And once the last name written in the Lamb's book of life is regenerated, born again from above, then he comes back. Whoo! I hope it's the sa- I hope it's somebody here. <laughs> if there's anyone here who's not saved So we, beloved, as Christians, live in a time of tension between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ, between the already inaugurated but not yet consummated kingdom of Jesus Christ. We are waiting for the full number of God's elect to come to saving faith. And in Revelation, we are waiting for those whose number must be fulfilled, which are the martyrs predetermined by God to die for the faith. So there's two ends of looking at the same thing. So God's purposes of judgment and blessing will continue to be seen on the earth until he returns. There has been, and beloved, there will continue to be the outpouring of these four vicious horsemen. There will be wars. There will be the red horse that represents man slaughtering man. There will be famine, there will be pestilence, and there will be death. Has been and will continue to be. There has also been and will continue to be Christians martyred for the sake of Jesus Christ until he comes back. And then the sixth seal that's open represents for us what's gonna happen then. Opened, but not yet enacted but will be enacted when the last elect saint is regenerated and the last martyr dies. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Gilwind. They, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath is come and who can possibly stand? Seal number five explained for us the delay because the full number of those who will be slain for the word has not been met. But seal number six, beloved, assures us that the end will indeed come. Oh, it's gonna come. And it's describing the ultimate end. And by the way, the book of Revelation repeats this scene Seven different times. You see the second coming of Christ in judgment seven different times. Same reality, different picture. Different angle. The book of Revelation is not chronological. The Revelation is like a big picture book. It's like a kaleidoscope. And that's how it's to be read. Now, they use the word earthquake here because the original recipients of the letter, remember now, the book of Revelation was not written to us. It was written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And again, just like Philippians was written to the f- church in Philippi, but nevertheless written for us, Asia Minor knew much about earthquakes. And we went over some of that history. They suffered. I mean, those places were desolated. Because of earthquakes. But when we read the Old Testament, we know that earthquakes and darkness are signs of God's visitation to earth in judgment. Jolts 2, verse 31. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Haggai 2, 6. Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Listen to the New Testament, Hebrews 12. Speaking of Mount Sinai, that's the context. At that time, his voice shook the earth. This is the time of Moses. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, Let us be grateful for receiving a what? A kingdom that cannot be shaken, beloved. You're part of that kingdom. You're his kingdom children. You have the power of the truth of the word of God because you have the Holy Spirit. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Notice all this prominent symbolism here. Verse 13, the sun became black as sackcloth, back in Revelation. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Now, in this day, there was a particular breed of goat, and it probably still is, that um, had very black, coarse hair, and they would make black sackcloth bags out of it. You've got a moon turning to blood. You have stars that fall to the earth as a fig sheds its winter fruit. This is all language that, d- that depicts judgment. Okay, real stars in heaven don't, don't fall on the earth like figs. You know how enormous they are? In Hebrew thought, beloved, this kind of metaphorical language communicates that which is occurring in the spiritual realm. I mean, we opened with uh, Psalm 98 this morning which reads, let the rivers clap their hands. You ever seen that happen? Let the hills sing for joy. You ever heard that? Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. All metaphorical language. The sky vanished like a scroll, verse 14, that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. I mean, what's this? You know, this rolling up of a scroll, like a retractable shade. You remember those things? They're still around, but as a kid, pull the shade and we get stuck. You do this. And then all of a sudden it goes. And then, you know, it busts the spring. But here the sky's rolling up like a scroll. And in the book of Revelation, the kind of look that you get at prophecy here is like that which you get in the Old Testament where prophetic pictures of judgment become a certain typology of final judgment. Point, types pointing to any types types figures pointing to fulfillment so old testament judgment depicted like this beloved pointed to a particular nation or people which became a type of a, a typology that pointed to greater final cataclysmic judgment So the language here is taken from the Old Testament. Several passages. We'll look at just one for a moment. Isaiah 34, 4. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away. The skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. So what we have here is a vivid but yet figurative depiction of final judgment. Judgment. And these expressions will occur again in the Revelation as we visit chapter by chapter. So this judgment here, beloved, is unlike the providential judgment that was released by way of these four horsemen. War and famines. Remember, only a quarter of the earth is affected or a third of the earth and sea life is affected. But not everyone. It's not all-inclusive, you see. But this... This is final judgment. This is ultimate judgment. The sixth seal is not limited. The sixth seal is not providential, but it's unmitigated, unrestrained, unmixed and final judgment of the Lamb of God who is Jesus Christ. Now notice verse 15. Most people that have the most security in life by way of the natural eye appear to be the rich And the famous. They can get the best doctors, the most protection, little safe havens. But notice in verse 15, on this day, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, everyone slave and free hide themselves, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from what? The wrath of God. The wrath of the Lamb. No one is able to stand on this day. You might not face as an unbeliever the providential wrath of God released by these four horsemen, but on this day, no one escapes, beloved. Nobody. Listen to Malachi 3 and 4. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. They want to hide from the wrath of the Lamb of God, beloved. These sinners aren't afraid of an earthquake. They're afraid of the coming end. Terrified to stand in the presence of the Holy One. That's why they cry out for the rocks to fall on them. Sinners don't dread death more than anything else. What they dread is the unshielded presence of the glory of Almighty God because that's what they'll face. There's no escape. You see, when Christ comes in glory, beloved, we'll have to be caught up. We'll have to be caught up immediately because we'll have to be made like Him immediately. Because no man can look at God and survive, amen? When we see him, we will see him as he is. When he comes, he'll snatch up the church and he keeps coming in judgment so everyone who remains will be sizzled because no one can stand in the presence of glorified Almighty God. So if they're gonna be sizzled physically, they will soon and immediately find themselves in resurrected bodies standing before the great white throne ready to be chucked into the lake of fire, Can't stand in this. So all those who openly mock Jesus Christ to those who pretend to know Jesus Christ to those who remain in the middle of surrendering to Jesus Christ, they'll all cry out for the rocks to fall on them. Anything but to have to face the wrath of the Lamb. See, that's the imagery. The imagery here is it's better to face cataclysmic upheaval than the wrath of Jesus Christ. That's the imagery being conveyed. There are only so many words, beloved, that we can use in any language known to man to convey the terror of the Lord. That's why you have earthquakes and you know uh, the picture of sh- stars falling from heaven. That is all imagery to show you something that is much greater than that. That's what apocalyptic literature does, provides for us. Calling to the mountains, fall on us, hide us. Who can stand? Any prayers at this point, beloved, will not be heard. It's too late. All that's left is the terrifying plight of their eternal existence. Now, we read something even more frightening when we get to chapter 14 of Revelation in verses 19 to 20. Um, we we read of the wine press and how these grapes are loaded in the wine press. And then when when you get to verses uh, 19 and 20, you see that it's people being thrown in there and the one that is stomping out the blood is Jesus Christ himself. And in this day, slave girls would work in these wine vats. They would pour grapes in it and they would stomp them out with their feet. And there was holes in the bottom and then all the juice would flow out. The Lord uses this to show that His final judgment will be Jesus Himself crushing and stomping those who reject Him. Thrown into this press, blood flows to the height of a horse's bridle. This is a horrific sight. Again, metaphorical language to convey this horror, this terror. People in this day understood this. This was terrifying. this world, beloved, is already under the judgment of God because they don't believe. He's already on the throne because he is God. Mankind has already turned to his own way, Isaiah says. Every act of judgment depicted in this book is a prefigurement of final final judgment. Now the wrath of the lamb has been removed for some. If you're in Christ this morning, that wrath has been removed. You'll never face this wrath. You'll never see this wrath. You'll never experience this kind of anger and hostility, this unmitigated hatred of Almighty God, the Lamb of God on you. It's been removed if you're in Christ. Why? Because he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. What peace? Peace with God. Anyone who does not have peace with God does not have the peace of God, but the wrath of God abides upon him already. And with his stripes we are healed, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. All those who are in him, all that wrath was laid upon the Son, Jesus Christ. As Jesus breathed his last breath on Calvary's hill, beloved, he said, It is what? It is finished, it is enough, it is adequate, it is sufficient, it is able to save sinners from their sin, atonement made for those who are helpless, who cannot provide for themselves and they know they cannot provide for themselves and the only place to go is down and humble repentance to the one who was crushed so that you'll never be crushed. Oh, you might die for your faith but all they can hurt is this your soul will go to be with him forever. So as a people whose sin has been removed, we're called by God for God so that the word of God, beloved, might shape our lives while we're here. Is the word of God shaping your life? Do you encourage one another to allow the word of God to shape your life because of the one who was crushed for your transgressions, crushed for my transgressions? I mean, we have to reach an unbelieving world. That's the power and that's the purpose, okay? We carry on the call of the disciples. We carry it out. I mean, how on earth are we going to reach Christians as a whole? How are we going to reach hostile Islamic nations or Hindu strongholds throughout the world? You know how it's going to be? Well, it's not going to be much different than how we reached Europe and other mission fields throughout the world, and that is by the blood of the martyrs. Living lives like this, molded and shaped by the word of God, proclaiming this glorious truth, you might end up dead because the fifth seal's been opened. It's been enacted. What, what, what does this tell us about some kind of escape from tribulation? Tell that to those whose blood is being shed now. You tell a man who preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ somewhere in Asia that, oh, brother, you're not going to go through the tribulation. Oh, I'm not, huh? You know what they did to my wife and my children? Tell them. God's predetermined end is fulfilled by God's predetermined means. And the blood of the saints is the means to his end. The seals have been opened. The world is judged. You've been set free. Only if you're in Christ. So, why is there war? Why is there bloodshed? Why is there pestilence? Why is there famine? Why is there death of the wicked followed by Hades in a providential sense, in a temporal sense on this earth? Because the first four seals have been opened. The horsemen are running wild on the earth. According to the preordained plan of Jesus Christ, he's called them out. Just as the fifth seal has been opened and enacted, it's the blood of the saints which will be shed. The famous observation of Tertullian was that, quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. See, there's no shame to live a radical life committed to Jesus Christ, beloved, which we all should do if we are indeed in Christ. If your life doesn't end in extreme persecution or martyrdom, there's no shame in that. We may never face persecution of this sort in America, but may we be earnestly committed to praying for the brothers and sisters who do, chosen by God to be martyred for God. Our persecution, our temptation is greater than theirs. As much as we pray for them, trust me, they pray for us. Because over there they say this, we know who our enemy is. You Christians in America, you don't know who the enemy is. He sneeps, slicks, slips in the back door all the time, and he gets you. You're the one that needs prayer. Oh, amen to that. So we may never face this, but, beloved, as I close, the Lamb of God was slain. By his blood, he ransomed a people for God from every language, from every tribe, from every people, from every nation, making them a kingdom, making them priests who are awaiting final and ultimate judgment as well as final and ultimate salvation. See, ultimate salvation has not occurred yet, beloved. Even those who are in heaven, final salvation has not come yet because that will come by way of the resurrection, glorified bodies on a new heaven and a new earth. That's the final end. In final judgment is the lake of fire where the unmitigated wrath of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, will be poured out on those who are outside of the one sealed by the Holy Spirit. May we rejoice. May we, beloved, be part of those that make up this group of people who live this truth, whose lives are molded by this truth, and who herald this truth unapologetically. Amen, Christians? Now, perhaps you're here, and you sense this morning the terror of the Lamb of God upon your heart. I mean, you've heard much about the Lamb of God. You've heard much about Jesus Christ. You've heard the gospel your whole life, but you know, you know you have never trusted him. And you can only know that because of the grace of God and the Holy Spirit's conviction. If that is you this morning and the terror of the Lamb is upon you this day, I say this, you cry out for his mercy. You cry out for his grace to save you, to rest in his mercy, his mercy that abounds to repentant sinners. If you came in like that this morning, here's the command. You must repent, turn from yourself, turn from this sin. You're not God, although you treat yourself as God. You're made in his image, ordered to submit to the one who created you. And you will soon come to learn that he died for you. Because where there's a life that produces repentance, there's a life that abides in Christ that comes to understand the love of Christ and in response, loves him in return and obeys by grace, only by grace, only by grace. That's when you become part of the church, meaning called out ones. I pray that he's calling you today if this is you. Father, we thank you, we praise you for your wrath Because as Christians, we know that your wrath was poured out upon your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, upon that cross, where he became a curse, where the sinless one became sin in our place. And mighty God, you made provision to a people who know that they can do nothing to save themselves. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the grace. We thank you for the mercy that called us to you. Bless your people this day, I pray. And Lord, if there is anyone here who senses your wrath, that they know they haven't submitted to you, they know the truth, may you grant them today repentance and ability to believe. Lord, grace them. Regenerate them today. Fall upon them right now, I ask, Lord. Holy Spirit, do a work in them that will absolutely transform their minds, that will bring them to their knees in thankful repentance and surrender and submission to the Lord of glory, the Lamb who's upon the throne, who is the conqueror of all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.